the season, uh, as it's called, the holiday season, it's called, I believe. And tonight is the first night of Hanukkah. And I guess got about uh, 12 days till Christmas. Um, and I was thinking a little about the spirit of this time, or the intention of the spirit of this time of the year. And I was thinking about the uh, Jewish story of Hanukkah, which is about a great miracle uh, that happened where there was, uh, they thought there was oil for one night to light the candles in the temple. And uh, the oil for one night burned for eight nights. And so it's, uh, it's a story of a miracle. It's an inspiring story. <clears throat> and the story of Christmas also is the story of a miracle, the birth of, of a Christ, of uh, an awakened one in the Christian tradition. And also an inspiring, both these stories have inspired people for many, many generations. And so I thought I would talk tonight about inspiration in practice and the importance of inspiration in practice. Uh, and I, there's a, a, a number of reasons why I wanted to talk about inspiration. It seemed appropriate to the season, as I've said. It also, uh, I like to talk about things that are inspiring. I like that part. There are a lot of different Dharma talks you can give. Some are educational, um, some are specific or about the body or this or that, um, you know, emotions. Um, but part of what um, the Buddha did was give also inspirational talks as well as educational talks. In the uh, suttas, uh, at the end of some of the talks, it said, it, it'll say that um, uh, the monks and nuns were delighted by his words and they were aroused and they were inspired by the teachings of the Buddha. <coughs> I also find for myself in my own practice, um, it helps me to be inspired. And I'm not always inspired. There are, there are cycles in practice and sometimes I'm very inspired and sometimes actually not so much. And I find that it's helpful for me to reflect on inspiration at times, that I can actually re-inspire myself, um, sometimes through readings or hearing talks, sometimes just thinking about and reflecting on what, what actually inspires me, what, what really moves me to practice. And when I went to the dictionary to look up inspiration, here are a couple of the definitions that I, I liked and I thought were uh, useful. One is that inspiration is a stimulation of the mind or emotions to a high level of activity and feeling. So that it's what, what, what gets stimulated. The mind and the heart get stimulated when one is inspired that we become engaged with our heart and our mind when we're inspired. The second one I really liked, it's a divine influence or guidance exerted directly on the mind or soul of man. So that it points to something beyond us, beyond our small sense of self that impacts us that allows us to go beyond our small sense of self. 
And it's a direct, immediate, visceral uh, experience when we're inspired. We know it when we're inspired. We know it when we've expired, too. (laughs) That comes at the end of the talk, the part about expiration. Um, And the third one is that it's the act of breathing in. That the in-breath itself is inspiration, is known as inspiration. It's one of the words for the in-breath. And so it's really central to our practice here, where mindfulness of the breath is central to uh, the practice of mindfulness itself. Inspiration is not separate from uh, what enlivens us, which is the in-breath. And inspiration itself, in the more general sense, uh, enlivens us. And originally it came from the Latin, spiritus, which originally meant breath. So spirit and breath are not so separate. And so when we're really with the breath, when we're really there, fully there, open, aware, it is inspiration. And when we're really with um, the things that inspire us, it brings spirit to life. So in reflecting uh, uh, about inspiration, here are some of the thoughts I had. I was thinking about it as a quality of mind and heart, um, which includes stimulation, but also a sense of energy. There's a sense of uh, brightness in the experience, Uh, um, excitement, excitation. Uh, Can be a sense of courage, adventure, Uh, It can bring um, fearlessness, a deepening of commitment, a sense of devotion in practice by being inspired. There's also qualities, um, the stimulation of the imagination, of the whole sense of possibility, the sense of passion in practice can also be nourished through inspiration. And the impact of inspiration, as I was reflecting on it for for myself, is a sense of movement, a sense of going forward, a sense of being motivated to continue, to go deeper, to go beyond what I know. Uh, A certain kind of enlivenment uh, that includes a sense of uh, commitment, action, going beyond my sense of self and even my sense of practice, a sense of action, of opening, of being opened, of being inspired to practice. And uh, I was reflecting on this uh, with a friend of mine the other day on the phone, and I said to him, I said, oh, do you know, you were, you were my inspiration to do my first 10-day retreat. And he's a friend of mine who's a, we've been friends for 25, maybe more years now. And we, uh, I started practicing Buddhism and kind of dragged him along a little bit. And then he got very involved in Zen practice. And um, at a certain point, he did his first Sashin, which is a Zen retreat, seven days. Um, and I was going to pick him up at the end of the retreat. And I picked him up. and brought him back to my house, and we were having tea and talking about it. 
we were sitting in the kitchen, and at a certain point he started laughing. And he laughed from such a deep place. It, it was, you know, and I'd known him, I've known him since he was 20 or something, very, you know, 19. And I'd never heard him laugh like this. And I, and I thought, I want that. I want, to, I want to be able to laugh from that place. And it really motivated me. I, I immediately signed up to go. I'd been wavering about whether to do a 10-day retreat. I'd, I'd done a, you know, probably a weekend retreat. And I just immediately went and signed up and went down and did a 10-day retreat. I had some other experiences, but I don't know if I laugh that deeply. But, but it, it, was, it was, he said, I said, and I've mentioned this at times in talks, and I said to him, uh, you know, you, you inspired me. And uh, he didn't know that. It was great to tell him that, that he'd inspired me in that way. So, so tonight I would like to share some of the pieces that have inspired me over the last year, some of the Dharma that's inspired me. In some way, I, I, I gave this talk for a small group on Thursday. And I thought later, oh, this is like oh, the best of Eugene this year, a little bit. <laughs> it was, uh, but it, um, and partly I, I, I thought of this topic because at the time when I was uh, having to give this talk, I thought oh, I have nothing to say, and it's been a little bit of flavor of uh, in my sense of teaching. Like it's all been said. Just do the practice, you know, there's really nothing to say. And it's, it's part of what you go through if you're teaching. There's certain cycles and a lot comes through. And then there's other times that are more fallow and, the, and there's not a lot happening. It's just like, just, you know, be mindful. That's the whole deal. You know, we've said it all. So I, I thought about, well, what inspires me? I did this reflection and I actually came up with a number of, of pieces. So one of the pieces that um you could yeah how's that any better okay good um so there'll be some some phrases or some poems or a few things that have inspired me this year um one piece that i've been inspired by is this phrase from the buddha he talked often about living the holy life. Just, just that. I, I love that phrase, living the holy life. And I'm really interested, fascinated actually, about what that means for us as lay people. Uh, I find it uh, quite exciting to think about it, to attempt to practice it, to attempt to teach it. What does it mean to live the holy life as lay people? And for myself, it means really um, revisioning what practice can be for us and what it means to practice and what it means to awaken, what it means to live the holy life. And it's different for different people. One of the things I've realized uh, that I think is a really good reflection for people is to think about what do you want from practice? What, what, do, you, what do you want? Because people want different things. And it's okay to want whatever you want. Some people want to just feel better. Some people want to be free from suffering. Some people want to open their hearts. 
Some people want to feel more connected to themselves. Some people want to feel less isolated from other people in the world. Uh, some people want to be liberated. And so I've been really reflecting on this. What does it mean to live the holy life? And there's actually many levels of living the holy life. But here's some of my thoughts about it. One of the thoughts that I have these days is that it means it's not a short-term deal. It's a lifetime of practice. It may even be lifetimes of practice. I don't know about that. But, I, but, but as I get older and as my practice continues year after year after year, I see, oh, this is a lifetime of practice. That there are um, deep understandings at times, um, great insight at times. Um, the whole idea of Eugene can go away and then come back the next day quite amazingly. Um, and so the mystery of practice really points me to the to the continuing unfoldment of what's possible, some of which I don't even know. So when I think about living the holy life as a layperson, I think about the commitment to a lifetime of practice and to a palette of practices. And I think we do a slight disservice, um, not exactly, it's not like we overemphasize mindfulness because I believe mindfulness is the core of all the practices that one can do. But that we need to start broadening our sense of practice so it includes a whole number of practices including mindfulness, the practice of metta or loving kindness, uh, the practice of investigation or inquiry, really looking deeply, questioning our experience. Um, the practice of reflection itself, which I'll say a little more about. Uh, study practice, sutta study, reading books, studying the Dharma, and really letting um, that level of practice uh, impact the more experiential level of practice and vice versa. You can read the same text once a year and you will understand it at different levels and at different ways as your practice deepens. And the text will impact your practice, your sitting practice, your understanding of what's happening and who and what you are. Or what freedom is in practice. So mindfulness, metta, reflection, investigation, uh, study, service. There's been a small group here in this Sangha who've done service projects. Uh, if you've never done uh, service in some form, you might consider it. It's a very powerful practice. It's practice in the world. It's bringing what we learn in our, on our seat, on the cushion, in retreat, into the world. Work as practice generosity as a practice. Anything that helps uh, chip away at the self-centered idea, anything we give ourselves to, 
fully so that we give ourselves away in that sense, like at work, when you really give yourself to your work. There's a great freedom that comes in that sense, in the sense that it can be practiced, the practice of awakening. Um, the precepts as a practice, taking any one precept and working with it for a week or a month or a year and seeing what happens because your understanding of it will deepen, the right speech, just, just that, working with the right speech, your understanding of it will deepen, it'll change you, it'll really impact you if you really work with one precept for any period of time. Sangha as practice, relationship, it's really relationship as practice. Not thinking of practice as simply sitting here with our eyes closed, but what is it to be with one another? How do we close off to other human beings? And what's so frightening about being open to one another? So one of the practices that I felt most inspired by this year is the practice of reflection. So I'd like to say a few more words about that. And in the discourse on the ten dharmas from the Buddha, the Dasadhamma Sutta, he says there are ten essential dharmas. These ten essential dharmas must be reflected upon again and again by one who has gone forth to live the holy life. And so there's a piece here that I also I want to add in that I think is very important. I like to look at the monastic tradition, the tradition that this practice of awakening flourished in, to see what I can understand that would be useful for us to use as lay people. Because what's, what's helpful about being a monastic is your whole life is oriented towards waking up. Everything you do is a practice for waking up. And so there's mindfulness practice, there's chanting practice, devotional practices, there's service that's done by the monks and nuns, um, there's um, begging as a practice, making oneself vulnerable, not, you know, really seeing one's vulnerability directly by not having anything, basically, and being dependent on others. Um, cleaning, sweeping the paths. If you've ever done uh, any Zen practice, uh, uh, it, here in this country, it's, it's very clear. You, you get up early in the morning, you go to the first sitting, um, you sit for however long, and then there's a service, which is chanting, acknowledging the ancestors. It's a devotional practice. It's, it's recommitting to the Dharma, not only experientially, but verbally. And then when that's done, you do uh, soji. And soji is cleaning the monastery. That's the next practice that you do. And actually, Zen practice is really uh, quite beautiful that way because everybody looks exactly the same. Everybody's wearing black. Everybody does the same thing at the same time. Again, another way to support the loosening of the self-centered idea by Sangha practice is what, is what Zen practice is. But here in these 10 reflections, um, which are the Buddha gave to the monastic community are really appropriate for us. And you could take any of these reflections and just see 
um, some of my favorites here. My life depends on others. It's such an important reflection for us to see that our life depends on others, especially in this culture which is totally deluded about the idea of independence, with this notion that anybody is independent and so prizes individuality and a sense of independence. Did anybody notice during the blackout how that happened last week here in San Francisco? How independent did you feel at that moment when PG&E failed us? You really see it clearly in that moment that we're not independent, that we're blind to our dependency. If it goes dark now here in this room, we'll feel our dependency immediately and directly and viscerally. But the lights are on now, so we don't notice the dependency. Or if the garbage doesn't get picked up for a week in San Francisco, you know, you really notice that we're dependent on the garbage people. Or if um, the truckers would, would go on strike, we would notice very quickly how dependent we are for our food or for so many other things. And so this is an important reflection, to reflect that our lives are dependent on others. And so clear in the monastic community where you go out begging for your food. Here it's a little harder to see as a layperson, but it's still true. Another of the many um, reflections here that I like. How do I spend my nights and days? How do I spend my days and nights? This must be reflected upon again and again by one who has gone forth to live the holy life. If you wish to live the holy life, this is an important reflection. How are we spending our time? And it's not to be judgmental or critical of yourself. That's not what the reflection's for. The reflection's to really help us deepen our practice. How do we spend our time? If you spend four hours a day in front of the TV, you don't have to be critical of that, but it's an interesting practice that you're doing, of TV practice, <laughs> you know? And is there a sense of freedom, mindfulness, wakefulness there? There can be for some people, but that's a pretty advanced practice. I know, I know one person who's pretty good at it, but he, but he practices at it. And I'll, I'll even give you a hint. One of the things that I was told that I find helpful is when you're watching the TV, also be aware of the space around the TV itself. Don't simply focus on the TV. And it creates a, a little bit of, you can sense the difference in practice. It's like what I often say, and I'll say it here right now, as you're listening to the talk, put 80% of your attention on your body right now. Feel your body, sense it, be open to it, and put 20% of your attention on, on me and my words. And you'll get the whole talk, but you'll get it in a slightly different way. You'll get it as practice. Now you can really be mindful of the body, and of course the hearing and seeing are part of the body. If you don't have eyes and ears, you don't hear and see. But it reorients you immediately towards, the, towards um, 
the experience of aliveness that's here that we want to be mindful of. And of course, the reflection on impermanence. There will be a parting someday from all those who are dear and loving to me. Death brings a separation. This must be reflected upon again and again by one who has gone forth. And this is an important reflection for us, not a comfortable reflection. We don't like this reflection generally, but it's true. I was thinking um, today of Larry and Mindy, who've been part of this group for many years, and there's a card up there. There's, they're foster parents for at-risk children and have been for many years, and it's part of their practice. And they lose some of the children. That's part of what happens. And there's a picture up there, and you can all take a look at one of their babies who died recently, Luke or Lucas, I'm not sure. And, uh, and they've done this practice for many years, and this one really, really was hard for them, very difficult. You know, at least usually they have some idea that a baby is not going to make it or only has so long to live. It might be a, a baby who'd been a, a crack baby or an AIDS baby or some serious, serious problem child. And uh, it's a hard practice to reflect on those that we love and care about will be separated from, either by their passing, their death, or our death. And yet it's such a powerful practice to reflect on this again and again. Sometimes people feel this is morbid to reflect on death. Uh, it can be at times, but it can also be quite illuminating, quite enlivening. It can create, create a certain sense of the truth, of the immediacy, that this is the only moment there is. You know, we may even know that intellectually, or we may have had an experience on retreat of that, oh, this is a, just the moment, this is all there is. But we forget, and we need help. We need the support of reflections like this so that we can really appreciate those that we love and care about, so we can appreciate ourselves because we won't be here. So the practice of reflection, I found this to be a very powerful and important practice, an inspiring practice this year. Here's, here's my, my quote of the year. <laughs> May have been the quote of the last two years, so you've probably all heard it at least once here, but this is from Dogen. He says, to study Buddhism is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be awakened by all things, or to be intimate with all things. To be awakened, enlightened by all things, is to drop off our own body and mind, and to drop off the body and minds of others. No trace of enlightenment remains, and this no trace continues endlessly. This is my, just, I love this quote. And it helps me, actually. It helps me to read it again and again. The first line is, is just great. To study Buddhism is to study the self. 
this is our laboratory, just this. You, you're it. You don't need anything else. We're just going to study the self here. And to study the self is to forget the self, which means to begin to, to let go of the self, to loosen the self-centered idea, which is what the self is. The self is an idea. That's all the self is a very powerful idea, a very compelling idea, an idea we believe in more than anything else, really. It's our deepest belief is that there's this self here. But as we know, both from practice and also if you at all study Western psychological theory, the self is a construct that happens, that occurs. That almost all the, the uh, Western theories now agree that the self isn't, uh, you're not born with a self. You know, I'm not born thinking I'm Eugene. Somebody told me I was Eugene. And they told me a lot of times before I got it. It took me years <laughs> to figure out that I was Eugene. You know? And that they were somebody else. You know, they were mom or dad or brother or sister. And it's and it's a, a construct in the mind, and it's actually, developmentally, it makes total sense. I mean, it's what needs to happen. But we hold it very tightly. We believe that's who we are. We forget about that there was something before this construct of self, which came through ideas and images and uh, um, experiences. And it's interesting that the the Western psychological tradition thinks, well, that's our true self, the self that gets constructed. They kind of forget about that first part when there wasn't a self that had been constructed. And it's interesting that the, the Western psychological tradition thinks, well, that's our true self, the self that gets constructed. They kind of forget about that first part when there wasn't a self that had been constructed. And it's, it's a fascinating study, especially when we actually have some taste of the selfless nature of reality. Because it's so freeing. You do a retreat and you just open. All you have to do is do a 10-day retreat and you, this openness comes generally. And it happens, and you go through all kinds of difficulty and pain and suffering and fun, interest and fun and uh, insight, and there's this kind of openness that comes. That's beyond our sense of self. There's just openness, or a sense of connectedness, or love, which is much more pointing at something that we would call true nature or Buddha nature. And then. Two days later, we're telling somebody about how open we were on retreat. Now it's the self talking about the selfless. And so it's this great dialectic that we're engaged in of studying the self and letting go of the self and seeing how the self recreates over and over again, continually. And yet it's not the truth. It's not our deepest truth or understanding of who and what we are. And as Dogen puts it, when we let go of the self, we're enlightened by everything. 
for in, in Japanese the character for enlightenment and intimacy are the same character so that we become intimate with everything there's an immediacy to experience we're actually here and experience we're not lost in our thoughts in our memories in our past associations but there becomes a vividness and aliveness and isness uh, often in Zen practice they call it they talk about the suchness of reality because you can't really put it into words because even though we can point to it with words the immediacy of the truth of this just this moment is indescribable and to be enlightened or intimate with all things is to drop off our own body and mind it's dropping off the concept the reification the objectification of self to the direct experience of what's here which is not an idea the ideas come after the experience and to drop off the bodies and minds of others and this is so wonderful when this can happen even for a second or on whatever level it happens we love it when people don't see us as their idea of us and I often use my daughter as an example of this she loves it when I'm not seeing her as my daughter and my idea of, of my daughter but really being open to who is this person now and she's still at an age where she changes fast enough it's really quite important for me to be able to see her not as who she was last week or a month ago and it's true of all of us none of us are the people we were who were sitting here last week it's just our idea that seems uh, kind of stale actually and then the last line no trace of enlightenment remains and this no trace continues endlessly I don't think I'll say anything about that line I'm still working on that line I have some ideas but maybe next year we'll get to that line <laughs> you know it's to be reflected on over and over again and it's partly it's just the beautiful poetry of Dogen I love the poetry of how he speaks about practice hmm. when I said that about um, to study Buddhism is to study the self it was really Buddha said it over and over again in many ways when he talked about loving kindness he said you could search the whole world over and not find anyone more deserving of your loving kindness than yourself or at the end of his life he said make a light of yourself he said the Dharma has been given it's not about me live the Dharma realize for yourself here's another way that EQ I think you've, most of you have heard of EQ he's my, my uh, kind of rogue Zen monk who I really like he, he, does everybody know what a koan is? anybody not know what a koan is? And you don't have to be shy everybody knows what a koan is a Zen teaching story uh, or idea a, a, a teaching story that awakens by uh, but not you can't figure out with your mind and EQ put it this way he said only one koan matters you 
The one thing I like to say about the selflessness piece, especially if you're new to practice, for me it was the hardest piece. I didn't get it at first. I understood suffering, no problem. <laughs> Impermanence, I mean, you sit one sitting and you see everything changes. But selfless, they're like, what are you talking about? What about me? You know, what about you? You gotta be kidding. I remember on my first retreat, I said to Joseph Goldstein, I said, are you trying to tell me there's no Joseph Goldstein? <laughs> and Joseph said, well, uh, yes and no. <laughs> um, but one of the things that I see over many years of practice, sometimes people have very deep uh, insights into selflessness or very powerful experiences. Uh, again, sometimes the whole body and mind can actually feel like it's just gone away uh, and it's really striking. But one of the things I see is that no matter what your experience, if you continue to practice, there's a slow experience of the sense of self relaxing and opening. And I, and I like to mention that, that if you do this practice seriously, this will happen. You will feel the sense of selflessness in some form that will happen for you. And Ryokan put, says it like this, he says, like the little stream, like the little stream um, making its way through the mossy crevices, I too quietly turn clear and transparent. I too quietly turn clear and transparent. It's a beautiful image for this sense of selflessness, emptiness. So the third piece that I want to mention that I found very inspiring this year is about the body. And again, I'll remind you again, sense your body. And it's a practice to remember to keep sensing your body as you listen to the talk. And it's really quite connected to this sense of there's only one koan you, or we study Buddhism, study self, because we're embodied. We're not disembodied. And so this body is the vehicle for awakening. And I've come to really appreciate the body, really uh, appreciate its aliveness. I mean, this is a human form that's here that won't be here forever. Um, I've come to appreciate its uh, magical nature, you know, that it, I mean, just this. Actually, Joseph used to say that a lot. He'd say, just this, if we understood just this. You know, we'd, again, we take it for granted. But something happens at a certain point, and this doesn't happen. <laughs> you know, I, I, I might be able to think, move, your arm, move my arm, but it doesn't happen at a certain point. And even the thought, even, you know, we talk a lot about the mind, but... I don't know if there's a mind without a body. Sure seems connected some way. And the Buddha, it was so central to his teaching. You know, in the teaching on mindfulness, the first 14 contemplations are about the body. Contemplating the body and all its permeations and all its forms as it shifts shapes, as it moves, as it walks, as it eats, as it sleeps urinating, defecating, everything 
can we be present in the body and wake up here? Here's, this is the great laboratory. This is the great opportunity. Just sensing your body, coming out of the world of ideas into a more direct experience, a more non-conceptual experience. You could do this just for a moment. Shut your eyes and feel your body and let go of everything you've ever heard. Forget everything you've ever heard about a body or been told about a body or remember about a body. Come out of the past, come into this present moment and notice what is this experience that's here that we call a body and we associate with a body and we've been told is a body. forget, let all the thoughts go, but feel this experience directly and immediately. And you begin to come into more non-conceptual realm of experience. And we're so caught in the world of concepts in the mind. And here's the body offering us this great opportunity to awaken. And the Buddha said, he said it this way, and this is, this is a quote that we, we use a lot in the Vipassana tradition, and um, often it's quoted as, um, in this fathom-long body you will find suffering, the cause of suffering, um, freedom from suffering, and the path that leads to freedom from suffering. But a more, I think a more accurate translation is, in this fathom-long body with its perceptions and inner sense, lies the world, the cause of the world, the cessation of the world, and the path that leads to that cessation. So it's the same flavor, but slightly different, and especially this piece about with its perception, with the seeing, and also with the inner experience. It's happening always. That's where we can discover the world and the cause of the world, or suffering and the cause of suffering, and cessation, freedom, the letting go and the path. One of my teachers puts it this way from Hamid Ali. He says, are you in your body? I mean, are you completely filling your body? I want to know whether you are in your feet or you just have feet. Do you live in them or are they just things you use when you walk? Are you in your belly? Or do you just know vaguely that you have a belly? Or is it just for food? Are you really in your hands? Or do you move them from a distance? Are you present in your cells, inhabiting and filling your body? It's a great practice. Use your body. I've really been stressing this over and over again. Actually, the next uh, day long that I'm doing at Spirit Rock is on mindfulness of the body and even the, the retreat we're doing later in, in January the theme is uh, a mindful embodied enlightenment or enlightened embodiment one of the other but they go together is the point and, and especially as lay people um, 
anywhere you are. Just start sensing your body and being aware of what's here. Uh, the breath can often be very uh, subtle and, and not so easily accessible at times. Um, but the body is, is grosser, more available. Use it. Practice with it as much as you can. And I have a num- number of other inspirations here, but I guess I'll just say one more. The question is, which one? It's also from Dogen. It's a poem of his. He says, treading along in this dreamlike, illusory realm, without looking for the traces I may have left. A cuckoo's song beckons me to return home. Hearing this, I tilt my head to see who has told me to turn back. But do not ask me where I am going as I travel in this limitless world where every step I take is home. Treading along in this dreamlike, illusory realm without looking for the traces I may have left. So he sees the ephemeral, impermanent nature of the world, dreamlike almost, in how it comes and goes. Where did 1998 go, everybody? Huh? It's a dream in that way. It's quite amazing. But he's not looking for the traces he may have left. He's not caught in the past. He hears the cuckoo song, and this is a little play on uh, a certain uh, sensibility. It may have a little bit to do with Zen one-upmanship, because what he's saying here is that um, the idea, the cultural idea that a cuckoo beckons you home, uh, he says, He says, do not ask me where I am going as I travel in this limitless world where every step I take is home. That it's not about getting somewhere, but it's about getting here. And so I found this, especially this last line, every step I take is home, totally inspiring this year. It's it's my mantra for my practice. Can I practice as if every step I take is home? Wherever I am is home. And it's been uh, exciting, it's been challenging, because it's not just when I'm feeling good, you know, and it's beautiful. It's not just when I'm in Hawaii, you know. It's like when it's really hard. Oh, can I practice as if this is home? That there is no pushing away of experience, uh, of, of the most difficult, of the painful experience, of the sense of things falling apart, Eugene falling apart, which is, of course, a really good experience in Buddhist practice. Um, But it's difficult, it's painful when we're falling apart. Or that whole sense of self starts to really shake, because really it's not based on anything substantial. There's nothing real there, it's a construct. It needs to shake at a certain point. It will shake at a certain point in practice, in life. It does, we know it does. It's interesting to go to a new place and think, this is home, right here. The people that I'm with, this is home. 
Can I be fully present and awake here? And noticing the fear or insecurity or uncomfortableness or awkwardness, can this be home? Can awkwardness be home? It's a very fierce practice to make every step I take home. Let's sit for a minute. Let this moment right now be home, whatever it is, bored, restless, tired, calm, excited, maybe inspired, hopefully. peaceful, agitated. Be open to the direct experience of studying the self right now. Not separate, but not entangled. Mindful, awake. 